Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 16, verses 19 through 24, and it can be found on page 876 of the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take this one um, from us as a gift. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Annalyn. Well, good morning to each one of you, and uh, welcome to those of you who this is your maybe your first time being with us at Christ Community in this sort of odd time to be a first-time guest at church, but thank you for those of you who have come and done that. Also, welcome back uh, to those of you who have been with us, but this is your first Sunday being back in the the, uh, building with us. Thanks for for being here, and like Annalyn mentioned, it's just so good to see your faces and to be with you together. in, in this moment. So we're going to continue. We're almost uh, done, but we have two more Sundays in our series in the parables of Jesus in, in the book of Luke. And so um, we're going to look at one more of those uh, today and then one more again next week before we uh, take a little bit of a break from Luke and uh, move on to some other things. So uh, let me pray for us as we begin this time and we'll dive into this parable that we heard Annalyn read for us. So Father in heaven, thank you uh, for this day. Thank you uh, for each uh, person here. We also pray for those who are gathering uh, online uh, this morning or even through other times throughout the day or this week to watch the service. Um, Thank you that we are united uh, in Christ, even uh, when we aren't necessarily able to be physically together. You bind us uh, together. Um, And we think of that not just for those who are online, but also with our brothers and sisters in other uh, campuses across our city. Um, and our brothers and sisters in other churches around our city and world. So thank you that we are united in Christ, and we live out that unity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently, this has been about a couple weeks ago, my parents uh, came to visit just for a short time, uh, but they were passing through. They had visited my sister in, who lives out in Wyoming, and they were coming back. They live over on the other side of the state in St. Louis, and so they stopped over for a couple of nights uh, in Kansas City to visit our family. And I don't know if this ever happens for you, and this happens for me, especially when it's someone like my parents coming to visit, but all of a sudden when I know we have guests coming over, uh, I start to look at my house in a, in a fresh way, sort of through someone else's eyes, and I notice things that I, I hadn't noticed before. And I think this is just the parent dynamic, but I'm like, oh, what, what, what little repair on the house is my dad going to notice that I've been putting off? And he's going to say, what about that? You know, and sure enough, my gutter had kind of been loose on one side of the house, and my dad had been there probably not uh, 15 minutes before. He said, did you see that gutter is kind of loose on the thing? So I started looking through. Uh, I just didn't have time to fix it. I was like, oh, I should fix this before my dad comes, so I know he's going to ask me about it. Um, but sometimes you have that experience. You, you have a guest coming, 
uh, and you start to see your house in, in, a new, in a new light. You start seeing things that, you know, maybe you've kind of overlooked for a while, but now you start noticing. And while, again, some of that's healthy, some of that's good, maybe some of it's not always healthy, but the reality is there are just things in our lives that over time we just stop noticing. They kind of blend into the background. We just don't notice them anymore. And I don't know about you, but one of those things that most often blinds me into things in my life that makes kind of details fade in the back is just my own, my own comfort. Because I like being comfortable. I like a routine. I like uh, having a pattern, kind of a a rut to follow. Uh, I don't enjoy being pushed out of that comfort. Um, I like having the security of routine, of knowing what's coming next, of, of knowing that things are secure. But I think we've all had the experience, the experience of, um, of, of dreading uh, a chore or a task. But then when you finally do it, when you step out of your comfort zone, you actually do the thing that you're dreading, um, of finding a satisfaction, of a joy that, that procrastination or putting it off um, could never give. I think I feel like that actually every month with whether it's doing the family budget and paying the bills. Um, I feel it every week writing a sermon. It's always this dreaded thing. And then you go on the other side. Okay, that wasn't so bad. But ask yourself this. We tend to believe that comfort is harmless. But I think for most of us, it's, it's one of the things that we strive for. And just ask yourself, is there... Anything that you want more than comfort, I want to suggest that comfort might actually be our curse at times. I recently, uh, I've been reading it, and Rachel's been reading it as well, my wife, this book called Finding Holy in the Suburbs. Um, called, the subtitle is Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. And the author, uh, Ashley Hales, she's really, uh, not only is the content good, but she just writes beautifully. Uh, and she points out the difficulty of, that comfort can bring. And she says, our souls suffer in the suburbs when we have the financial means to always fill our needs where we sleep on feather beds and eat rich foods, not until we feel our hunger, she points out, can we be propelled to our repentance, vulnerability, welcome, and belonging. And this is what I thought was so insightful. The more I use stuff to fill up my hungers, the more distance I put between myself and God, the more I use stuff to fill up my hungers, and she's not even just talking strictly kind of physical hunger, but just all the longings and aches of our soul. The more we use stuff to fill that up, the more distance we put between ourselves and God. So when comfort becomes the status quo, it starts to blind us. And so this morning, Jesus invites us into a story here in Luke chapter 16 that functions a bit like having a guest over to your house. It starts to open up your eyes to maybe things that you have missed or have just become accustomed to or thought this is just the status quo of how things work. And so as we look at the story this morning, this parable, we're going to see how comfort blinds us really to three things. Comfort tends to blind us to others. Uh, Comfort actually blinds us to ourselves. And then also comfort blinds us to the brevity of life. So that's going to kind of be our outline for this morning. We're going to follow that. Comfort blinds us to others. It blinds us to ourselves. And then it blinds us to the brevity of life. 
And to understand why Jesus tells this story, this parable here, we need to look back a few verses in the chapter. And so if you uh, have a Bible open um, or you pull it up, a digital Bible on your phone, there's pew Bibles as well there. But Luke chapter 16, if you look at verse 16 of Luke chapter 16, or I should say back up to verse 14, Luke kind of gives us this narrative setting that then Jesus speaks this parable into. So this is the setting. This is the Pharisees, and then this is key, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus had been teaching, and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees, they were comfortable in their money, comfortable in their righteousness, comfortable in their sort of exalted state. And then Jesus tells them the most terrifying words you can say to someone who is deep in their comfort, and that is that God knows your hearts. God knows your hearts. And then just a couple verses later, Jesus tells us this story. Annalyn read the first part of it to us. The story opens with the words that Jesus introduces to us. And, and uh, you know, these, these two men in the story, the rich man and Lazarus, and I, I love one scholar of the parable says, these two men are worlds apart from each other in all but geography. These two men, the rich man and Lazarus, are worlds apart from each other in all but geography. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man whose name was Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So this is the picture we get of the, of the rich man, to kind of bring it into our, our kind of framework today. This is, this is a man, he's dressed in a, a bespoke suit, you know, this custom tailored suit with all the latest and most expensive accessories from Burberry, Louis Vuitton, Saint Laurent. I mean, this guy has the nicest, finest stuff you can buy. That's the picture we're supposed to get in our minds when we hear that he was described as being clothed in purple. That's the, the richest of garments you could have. He's got the nicest stuff. Uh, he's also the guy who kind of keeps up the uh, uh, sort of a perpetual sort of Hollywood-style house party. There's always feasting happening. There's always people hanging out. Um, one thing that even scholars point out, too, is that because this feasting is constantly happening, it means that he's uh, probably not practicing Sabbath rest, and certainly his servants and the people who work for him are not getting Sabbath rest because they're constantly keeping a party going at this house. And while we might not have the level of extravagance of the rich man that Jesus describes, by the standard of most people who have lived in history, and certainly even across the world today, if, if we at home have a full fridge, uh, more than a change or two of clothes, and if you've got any money in a, in a checking account or a savings account somewhere, then we, we really qualify as being counted in those who would be the rich. I mean, again, that's certainly throughout history and even across the globe today. If you've got food in the fridge, if you've got clothes in the closet, and a little bit of money, even if it's not a lot of money, but if you've got a little bit of money, 
in a bank. We, we start to fit into that category of, of the rich. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with being rich, even having nice clothes or, or having good food. And in, in fact, Abraham, who is, we're going to meet later on in the parable, um, who's in heaven, who Lazarus is with, is blessed. I mean, you look at Abraham, Abraham had a lot of means, a lot of wealth in the Old Testament. So the problem is not with wealth. The problem, as we will see, is not wealth itself, but what wealth has the power to blind us to. What wealth has the power to blind us to. Now, Lazarus, who, by the way, is the only character that in any of Jesus' parables that he tells, the only named character. So most of Jesus' parables, it's just, you know, a, a man and his two sons, uh, or a man and his workers. There's no names. Lazarus is the only named character in a parable that Jesus tells. A lot of people speculate on why that is. The, the name literally means God is my help, or God is my helper, or Eleazar from, from the Hebrew. Um, but he's the only named character, and he's very personalized in that. And he couldn't be more different from the rich man. Uh, he's so poor that his only option is to beg. And notice that even the way that Jesus describes him there in verse 19, as he says, or verse 20, I should say, that he was laid, he was laid at the rich man's gate. And the implication there is that he had to be carried there. So he maybe can't walk, or he is so old that he's, he's physically incapable of walking, or he's disabled in some way. He's laid at the rich man's gate. He must be carried there. And again, the, the idea of the gate is sort of the, the end of a gated driveway. So you, so you imagine the house up there, and he's kind of at the end of this gated driveway. There's the big, big house at the end of the driveway. And you sort of wonder, as Lazarus lays there, can he hear the parties happening? Can he smell the food cooking? And it says he's not even begging for money. He just wants scraps that are falling from the table. And scholars point out that those scraps are not just like the leftovers, but in that culture and time, you, uh, had, you didn't have, you know, paper napkins from, you know, hy V that you used. You actually had like, there was kinds of bread that you would use. That's because you'd eat with your hands, and there was bread that you would basically use as a napkin. It's what you'd wipe your, your hands off with. And then you just kind of toss those bread napkins on the floor. That's what Lazarus is longing to eat. Can I just have some of this discarded bread napkins to eat. And to top it off, this poor guy, he's covered with sores. And dogs are coming and, and licking his, his sores. Which, two things about that, both the dogs and the sores, this means for the people in Jesus' time, they're seeing him as someone who's unclean. Dogs are unclean animals. Skin conditions made you unclean. In terms of, this is not about even categories of moral guilt uh, or moral righteousness, but of cleanliness. Could you enter into God's space? So he's with unclean dogs. He's got skin conditions that make him unclean. He's just, he's undesirable in every way. Again, you have one who is empty, one who is full, one who is rich, one who is poor, one who is clothed in purple, one who is clothed in sores. These two men are worlds apart in everything but geography. They're right 
there at the same house. And the Pharisees listening, as well as maybe some of us as comfortable Americans, should already start feeling a bit nervous at this point in Jesus' story. Because comfort blinds us. It has the power to blind us to others. And we're going to find out as the story continues that the rich man, he recognizes Lazarus. He knows Lazarus' name, but he never did anything to help him. It's not like, this is not a moment where it, Lazarus just was there one time. And maybe the rich man didn't even happen to see him that day. You know, the, the sense in the story is that he knows Lazarus' name. He's laid there every day. He sees him. The rich man sees him there day after day, year after year, and he has done nothing to help this guy. That's, that's the context. This isn't just at one moment seeing someone with a, a sign saying anything helps and you pass by on the road on your way to work. This is every day this guy is at this gate. And Lazarus or the rich man does nothing to help him. Now, that is kind of like, man, that's, that's not cool. I mean, in our culture, but it would have been unthinkable in that cultural time because there is no, think back, you know, 2,000 years, this is for, there's no social security. There's no, uh, you know, Medicaid, um, you know, health insurance help for this guy. There's no Salvation Army. There's no City Union Mission. Uh, there's none of these kind of organizations that exist. The way that those in this culture would receive help was through almsgiving, by people taking pity on them. That was the social safety net for this guy, was someone who had more means than him being able to give him some food or some money. That was just part of what was woven into the culture. That's how you helped people. But this rich man's comfort had blinded him to others. And material comfort has a way of doing that. It allows us to isolate ourselves because the more means we have on our own, the less we need to depend on and rely on other people. It has this effect of isolating us. And we don't even come in contact today in our city, oftentimes with the poor in the way the rich man did. And that's not an accident, right? Our cities are actually designed and shaped in ways that certain neighborhoods and certain roads and certain setups where we don't even encounter the poor in the same kind of way. Again, not because we don't want to, even though we might not want to, or because we're intentionally avoiding it, but our just cities are laid out in ways where it can be very easy to live in certain parts of the city and never encounter poor people. Now, there's an idea in communication theory called the curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge is this, is that when you know something, it's hard to remember that other people don't know it. And so a lot of communication breakdown in organizations and leadership happens because it's like, I know this piece of information, and once I know it, it's obvious to me, and I tend to forget that other people don't know it, that I might need to actively work to communicate to them. It's just called the curse of knowledge. It's a really helpful principle, especially if you're, you know, giving leadership or you're with, even within your family, that just because you know something, you, it's easy to forget that others don't know that, whether it's about an appointment that you made to have dinner as a family, some other family, or whatever it might be. I want to suggest that there's a similar analogy that we could draw to a curse of comfort, which is simply this, that when we have something it's really hard to remember that others might not. 
And I think in this that most failures to love our neighbors are inadvertent. People are simply unaware of the plights and needs of others around them because of the power of comfort and ease to blind us to the needs of others. That's the curse of comfort. It means that when you have something, it's hard to remember that others don't. But this is not where Jesus' story stops. It starts really getting interesting here in the coming verses because both the rich man and Lazarus, they die. And their positions are now incredibly reversed. One is in suffering. The other one uh, is comforted. Verse 22. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now again, in Jesus, packs so much into these short verses. But notice that the rich man and, the, and Lazarus, even in their death, are different. So it says the rich man dies and, the, uh, and Lazarus dies. Lazarus is carried off by the angels. And really the idea there with this idea of him being carried off by the angels is there's no one to collect his body. There's no memorial. There's no funeral. There's no tomb. There's no burial plot. Lazarus is carried off by the angels. The rich man, he's buried. Like there's people there to take care of him. He has a nice funeral, all of that. But what is shocking is not just the reversal of their positions, but that the rich man's attitude actually does not change. The rich man continues to have the exact same attitude toward Lazarus. There's no repentance. There's no empathy now that he has experienced suffering. In fact, he continues to view Lazarus as less than, as a slave to do his bidding. Listen to verse 24. Listen to how the rich man continues to treat Lazarus. And he called out, first of all, notice he doesn't even talk to Lazarus. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of a finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish. The rich man looks at Abraham and says, this is the guy who's like me. Abraham, would you, would you send Lazarus come to serve me? There's no repentance on the rich man's part. There's no change of heart. He still views Lazarus as someone who exists to serve him. And then later in the story, Abraham sends, uh, he asks uh, Abraham to send Lazarus out of heaven, back to earth, to preach to his family so that they wouldn't end up in the same place that he is. And Kenneth Bailey, who's one of the best in terms of understanding the cultural context of Jesus' ministry and the parables, uh, he, he captures just the outrageous audacity of the rich man here. This is what he writes. This is so good from Bailey. The rich man's first demand is unbelievable. When Lazarus was in pain, he was ignored by the rich man. Now the rich man is pain, in pain and something must be done about it immediately. After all, he is unaccustomed to such things. Instead of an apology, he demands services and from the very man he refused to help in spite of his great wealth. 
You see, the rich man still sees himself as the center of reality and demands to be served rather than uh, to serve himself. This is the essence of what hell is. It's being bent back on yourself so much to the point that you see yourself as the center of all reality and that everything exists to serve you. And when that gets carried out to its logical and eternal conclusion, you find yourself in the place of the rich man. Now, this isn't primarily a parable about heaven and hell. Uh, They are kind of just the setting of the story that Jesus is telling. This is not the main thing that Jesus is teaching on here. But it is clear that Jesus sees both heaven and hell as very real places and certainly describes one of them as a place you do not want to be. Which leads us to our next observation here, and that is that comfort blinds us to ourselves. Again, the rich man is still in anguish, but he still does not see himself clearly. Comfort blinds him. It blinds us to a sense of entitlement that we might carry. And and this is just one of the great temptations for the comfortable people. We justify it. We take it for granted. And eventually we believe that we are entitled to it. That I I worked harder than everybody else. Or I'm smarter. I've earned it. And and, and those people, the Lazaruses of the world, if they would just get a job or or try a little harder or get himself off of welfare or whatever, not minimizing the importance of hard work, of course, but pointing out the severity sometimes of our own sense of entitlement and forgetting that all of our capacities, our ability to work hard, the education that we received, all of those things are gifts from God as well. But comfort tends to blind us to the reality that all that we have both good and bad, have come from God. When God gives us good material blessings, how do we respond? I think this is really at the heart of Jesus' teaching here. When we receive material blessings, good material blessings from God, what do we do with them? Do we respond with gratitude and generosity? or with entitlement and indulgence. And I don't want to set those up as binaries like we only ever always do one of those things. I think if I look at my own life, there are times when I respond with gratitude and generosity, when I respond with a sense of entitlement and with own self-indulgence. But what do we do when God gives us good material gifts? How do we respond? This is the heart of Jesus' teaching here. But there's one more thing that we can't miss, and it's this. It's the brevity of life and the finality of death. The brevity of life and the finality of death. Jesus is clear here that there is an existence that continues after physical death in this life, either for beauty and joy or for anguish and suffering. Both comfort has the reality to, to, or the, the, the power to blind us to that reality. Comfort tends to focus us on the here and the now, to our comfort in this life. And let me tell you, the more comfortable you are, the better your life is here and now, the harder it is to think about eternity. Because when we have it really good and comfortable in this life, it's easy to settle for the lesser and temporal comforts of nice clothes and good food. And that's honestly what frightens me most about Jesus' teaching here. When life is good and comfortable and happy, God becomes an accessory to my life rather than the centrality of life. And I think one of the best parts, if I can say there's best parts to everything that we're experiencing in light of the pandemic, 
is that some of that loss of control, some of that loss of security, some of that loss of comfort, and in my own story, that's been fairly minimal compared to most people uh, in the pandemic. But even just a little bit of the shaking of that has forced me to rely more on God, to pray more, to feel my desperation more, to long for when all will be set right more, to recognize that my hope is not just in this life, but is in a new heavens and a new earth that's coming. God has been more real, more palpable. And I've heard many of you, as I've talked to you, we've emailed, we've caught up, that's been true for you as well. How is Jesus calling us to respond then to this parable? And I think the response that Jesus wants from us in this parable is to trade today's comforts for better ones tomorrow. He wants us to be willing to trade some of our comfort today for better ones tomorrow. And could you, could I, could we together give up even a small amount of comfort to care for those who are suffering here and around the world? Uh, For example, if you've never, and this is just, I mean, there's lots and lots of things you could do here, but let me just give you one really practical example. If you've never uh, participated in some kind of a child sponsorship program through World Vision or Compassion International, there's so many organizations, right? So we, uh, as a family, have gone through Compassion International. It's $38 a month. That's that's one takeout meal a month. And, And you can supply the the food and health and education for a child in a developing country. I mean, that's so, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's so simple, right? I think most of us could easily sacrifice some bit of comfort in our life to make $38 extra available. That's just one example to imagine but just how could we imagine just small bits of our comfort being given up so that someone else can, can literally live, have the medicine, the education, the flourishing that would not be possible without it? So start with something small like that. Maybe if you support one child, maybe you think, maybe this year I'm going to stretch myself and add another one. Give up a little bit of today's comfort for better comfort tomorrow. And when we live like this, trading our comforts, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude and joy, that's, that's why we do it, because we experience joy in Jesus. Because think of the comforts that Jesus had. He had all the comfort and joy and glory that he could ever need with the Father and the Spirit, and yet he traded them to receive what we deserve. He uh, came to earth from heaven so that he could rescue us. Every overlooked opportunity to serve, every self-indulgent comfort-seeking action has been dealt with by Jesus. Every one of us deserves rightly what the rich man receives. But every one of us can receive the comfort that Lazarus receives because Jesus has taken all that we deserve on himself. Jesus traded the comforts of heaven to rescue you. You see, in this parable, there's so much here, we're going to unpack all of it. We're coming to an end here. But Abraham says that the chasm between heaven and hell, it's Lazarus can't come over there. These destinies are fixed. No one can cross the chasm between heaven and hell except one, Jesus. 
He defeated the power of death. He was the one person who came from heaven to hell, from heaven to earth, and died, went in, faced all that death and evil had to offer so that we could be rescued. And now, friends, we have far more than the law and the prophets. We have an empty tomb and a risen Savior testifying to us of the truth and the hope and the rescue that is available in the gospel. And and if you've never committed yourself to him today, do that. In faith today, commit yourself to him. And believe in loyalty and trust in faith before the chasm is fixed. Find the joy, a joy that no merely earthly comfort could ever bring. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the sobriety of the warning that you give in this parable. And I pray that it would be uh, for each of us what it's been for me as I've studied and worked on this passage, just an experience of opening my eyes to things that I have, I've just got complacent about. Would we find joy in using the good gifts you've given us to bring joy others. In Jesus' name, amen.